pray with me. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. We pray that you might encourage our hearts. We pray that you would use it for the glory of your name. And that as we look, we would see a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is excellent. Jesus Christ who is majestic. Jesus Christ who is kind and compassionate and merciful. And we'll see many of these things in this passage. So I just pray for the hearts of everyone that's here. Um, and perhaps even most, my own, that I can communicate this picture of Jesus to the people that are here. And it is his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And we're going to go back and forth between these two narratives in Mark 5 and then in Matthew chapter 9 as well. And the message is entitled, Encouraged by Jesus' Jesus Healing Touch. Encouraged by Jesus' Healing Touch. And the question is why? Why a message like this? There are several things I want to share with you initially as I introduce this topic to you. And the first is this reality that why a lesson that looks to the life of Jesus is always a good choice. It really is. Because you can never go wrong. Um, I've been asked to speak in any number of places um, around America, even I've crossed the Atlantic to speak in other places as well. But one thing that's in common, if we can bring a message about Jesus Christ, it will address everything that a person is faced with. If there are people that don't know the Lord, well, obviously that's a great message because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. If it's believers that are maybe going through difficulties, well, that's a great message because they can be encouraged by the example of Jesus Christ. If there are problems that people are facing, maybe there's sins that they're struggling with, well, it's a great message because Jesus Christ is in the solution. So it doesn't matter what a person is faced with, what they're thinking through, where they are in life, what stage in life they find themselves, we always will be encouraged about a message that brings us to the feet of Jesus Christ. I think you would all agree with that, right? Absolutely. And here's another thing I want us to consider. Jesus' healing touch really is an example of the power of God. It's an example of the power of God that can accomplish something that man cannot. When we look to this passage, you'll see how God's power does something that really communicates that man is very limited, and God has no limits whatsoever. There's another reason that this passage, I think, is a good example, because we all need examples to be encouraged by. We need people to encourage us. We all are faced with situations in life when we need someone to come along and say, it's okay, it's all right, to cheer us up a little bit. Even in the ministry, and I have been ministering for, wow, let's see here. I came out to California in... 19, when was it? My wife, I'm, my, my memory is escaping me. When did I come out here? It's like 1989. Yeah, that's it, 1989. Yeah, wow. Well, you, you said no, it has to be. Yeah, it can't be 89. I was, wait a minute. Yes, it was 89. Yeah, that's it. Why did you say no, it is 89? Okay, 1989, right? 1989, some 20-some years ago, right? And all of a sudden, I come out here, and I've been ministering since then. I got involved at Grace Community Church, 
and ministered there while I went through seminary the first time, was on staff. I ministered to single adults, got ordained there at Grace Church, sent out by Grace Church. And so all these years I've been ministering. But you know what? With all that experience and background and people say, oh, you have that degree or you teach at that place. Isn't that wonderful? You never get discouraged. Mm. What do you think is the answer to that? (laughs) Do you think I ever get discouraged? Oh, absolutely I do. And there are moments when I need someone else that can come alongside me and encourage me. Some other example that I can look to. Maybe it's an example that I read. I read about the life of someone else and I can be encouraged by it. Maybe it's someone that really comes to me, really right beside me, and they encourage me. But most often, I can just look to the Gospels, and I get encouragement because I look to Jesus Christ. Now, in this narrative, you're going to see seven. They're going to be seven, we'll call them movements or responses. And these seven movements or responses act as a reminder of God's character and also our need. So seven of them that we're going to look at. And let's consider the first one. Now, are we going to do the PowerPoint? Okay. (laughs) All right. Give him a second. All right. I'll start. uh, um, I'll start on point number one. All right. Excellent. Point number one. Be sympathetic. And you have your outline there. So if we don't, we'll just walk through the outline. And I'll fill in the blanks for you. Be sympathetic to the woman who suffered constantly. Be sympathetic towards us. So that's the first thing for us to consider in this narrative. Now, in Matthew 9, 20, it says, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. And then in Mark 5, 26, it says, And she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Wow. Think about this woman's position. Twelve years she's suffering. And not only has she suffered for 12 years, but she attempted to get some relief from it. It says that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Now, the question that's sort of curious, why would it say endured? Why did she endure much at the hands of physicians? And the word means she had suffered. And it's a very strong word. It's the same word that we find used of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, talking about Christ is referring to his future suffering. We see it in the book of Acts when it talks about suffering. We see it in the book of Philippians when it talks about what Christ suffered in Philippians chapter 1. So a strong word. Why would it say that she suffered much at the hands of the physicians? Because there are any number of remedies that they would have attempted for her to use that they thought were going to help her, but it didn't. And you notice something else? It says that many physicians, and she spent what? How much did she spend? It says all that she had, and she was not helped at all. So all that she had, but not helped at all. And you see this woman, she suffered really on three different levels. Three different levels. And what's interesting, you you get to these three points because in it there's these three participles that are saying, having had this for 12 years. She having endured, it says. And then it tells us that all this occurred, and yet she's not helped at all. Well, let's consider the first level that she suffered on. She suffered from the disease itself. So having it for 12 years, she had this long bout 
with this problem. It was really debilitating. And it was socially, we might even say this, discriminating. Because according to Leviticus 15, 19 and 27, when a woman was experiencing this, she was considered unclean. Now imagine that you have been experiencing this for 12 years, none stop. And as a matter of fact, it tells us in Leviticus that if she were to touch someone else, then that person would be considered impure or unclean. So there's this stigmatism that comes with what she is battling. And to experience it for 12 years? Let's think about that for a moment. That's a long time. You know, time goes by, and all of a sudden you say, wow, I look up, say, for instance, everyone, I'm here, I'm glad that my family can come with me. They don't always come with me. And I look up and say, wow, when did that happen? You know, when did my son become taller than me, right? Um, when is it that my daughter's going to go off to college? When is it that the other kids are doing these things? And when is it that now we can, which there's some good things that happen as well when the kids grow up. Like he can go out on a date night and you can leave him at home, right? Well, some of you are younger, you don't quite know that yet, but you know, you'll appreciate it one day, right? When you can say, hey, let's go out because now they've grown up. And one day they're going to grow up and they'll come back and they'll have kids. Time goes by, but think about it, 12 years. Wow, where were you 12 years ago? 12 years ago, think about that. What's happened in the last 12 years of your life? But think, 12 years of suffering. You're considered an outcast. Even if you touch someone else, people might even avoid you because they're thinking, no, I can't become impure. If that woman touches me, that's what's going to happen. So not only does she experience the discomfort that comes with it, but there's a stigmatism with it as well. Secondly, she suffered at this level. She suffered from insufficient care because it says having endured at the hands of many physicians. So it's communicating that it was ongoing throughout these 12 years. Not only is she humiliated, but no one can give her any help. Here's some odd remedies that um, sort of history tells us that probably was used at this time. Number one, she would have to drink a goblet of wine containing some powder that was compounded from rubber and alum and garden um, flowers, it says. Secondly, she would have to take a dose of Persian onion cooked in wine and administer with the summons, arise out of your flow of blood. That didn't help, 12 years. Number three, what they would do as well, maybe just give her certain shocks all of a sudden. That didn't help. 12 years later, she's still troubled. And here's another one that she would have to do, perhaps. Maybe she did it. We aren't sure. She would carry around the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth. Imagine that. So we have wine with all these strange drinks in it, shocks. She's carrying around an ostrich egg's ash, but yet she's still not helped. What did she need? She needed the great physician. She needed the one that was really beyond any other physician that was there. It had a power that it was unique. Turn with me to Psalm 147. and sort of a picture of how God is concerned for people and how he looks to the brokenhearted and how he's compassionate. You see this in Psalm 47, but yet in the psalm, you also realize just how great God is. And that's what's so curious about it, because here is a God that is the creator of the universe, the one that upholds all things by the word of his power, but yet at the same time, he has this concern for the needs of people. 
And um, Psalm 147 says this in verse 2. It says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. So right there we notice sort of the heart that God has. He's one that edifies, he builds up, but he gathers the outcasts, those that others may not think much about. Notice what it says in verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. But yet, what's interesting, notice this transition. So here is this God that builds up the very center of religious experience, that is Jerusalem, if you will, in verse 2. He gathers people together. He heals the bind. He binds up the wounds of those that are brokenhearted. But yet in verse 4, what does it say? He also counts the number of the stars, and he gives them all names. Then in verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in strength, and his understanding is infinite. So this same infinite, eternal, and great God is the one that shows great care and concern. Notice in verse 6 what it says. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. So those that the wicked may be afflicting, God comes to their rescue. So this is the sort of God that he is. Okay. Go back with me to Mark chapter 5. So there is an application. And the application is this. Many people try, or people can simply say it this way, people try many things before they come to grips with their reality that they need only Christ. I mean, I'm not sure what your testimony may be. I'm, I'm sure there are varying testimonies out here. But something that often we find can be a common thread is that people attempt so many things before they come to Christ. Uh, maybe they try some sort of religion and they realize that it is only Christ. Maybe in the world they're, they're attempting to find satisfaction in the world and then they come to Christ. And many people attempt things that will never satisfy them. Here is this woman. She wanted to be healed. She thought maybe these physicians could do it 12 years, but yet there is no healing. But ultimately, who comes to her rescue? The great physician does. It's interesting. In, in Jeremiah eight twenty two, it says this. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? And what was that scripture communicating in Jeremiah? He was saying in that scripture that surely there's some balm. We think about a balm, something that can soothe, something that can heal. Why is it that my people are still broken and downcast? Jesus Christ is a solution. So in this application, realize that people will attempt many different things, but at the same time, make sure that we are offering them the only solution. The world attempts many different solutions, and we have the ultimate solution. We have the ultimate physician, so make sure that you're directing people and their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ. Here's a third way in which this woman suffered. She suffered from debilitation, because it says this, having grown worse. So she had it for 12 years, she pursued help, it didn't work. And then in the end it says she grew worse, not better. You know, one of the saddest moments of my life is um, when my father returned from Walter Reed Army Hospital. And it was the last day as he got back that he had seen my mother alive. 
I'll never forget it. I was um, seven years old at the time, and I'll never forget exactly where it happened. In the hallway, right by the kitchen doors, my dad was going into the kitchen. And he had come back, and he had been there because my mom had this long bout with cancer. And he came back from Walter Reed, and he said, and these were his exact words. And I'll put it in context for you later. He says, they killed your mother, son. I thought, what do you? And what did he mean by that? You know, here is this woman that was his high school sweetheart that he married and had eight kids with. I was the eighth one. And you spend your life with them. And you think you're going to, you know, one of you will bury the other well into the end of your life. Not at this stage in life. It's not going to happen. But why did he make that statement? It was partly because of this, that the signs of my mom's cancer really had been misdiagnosed. So for a long period of time, they were treating her for something else. And when they finally realized that it was a cancer, it really was too late. There was nothing that could be done. And that was sort of his emotions coming out where he thought in his mind, what have they done to my wife? It grew worse with my mom, although she was pursuing care. Because it was just too late. There was a certain limitation that the doctors had. They couldn't do what my dad wanted to do and, and what everyone else in the family wanted them to do. There were limitations that were there. But here's the great thing about it. Although my mom suffered in that moment when she breathed her last, she entered into the presence of the Lord. And she, no more pain, no more suffering, no more medication, no more radiation. It was all gone. In that moment, she entered into her Savior's arms, although she left her, my dad's. I think about this woman that's suffering here. Here's an application for you, and it's this. Man's condition without Christ will only grow worse. So what are we to do? Reject the notion that men will heal themselves. There is this sort of vain attempt that people have in society, and they think that somehow they can make their lives better. They think that somehow spiritually they can generate something in themselves that will save themselves. That is impossible. It, it, it really is. I, just this um, week I've been going through, well, not this week, but a couple Sundays now, a series in Ephesians chapter 1, and I answered a, a number of questions. I asked people, what are your questions about predestination? And some people asked a couple things about it. And one thing that I talked about was the issue of total depravity, or it can be communicated man's total inability. Man has no ability in himself to save himself, though he tries. He tries it through religion. He can't. He tries it through modification of, of his behavior, but he can't because man is birth in sin. He is blind, and it takes divine intervention for someone, that someone being the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to remove the veil that is over his eyes. So he has an absolute inability. He is totally depraved, not in the sense that he, he always does evil all the time, uh, the worst things that can be done. It means that he has no ability to say, I will come to Christ. And that's why when you come to Christ, everyone that knows the Lord, you should be so thankful because it's the realization that you only came to Christ as a result of God's grace. 
Without the grace of God, where would we all be? I mean, without the grace of God, where would I be? It was God's grace that sought me out on that campus many, many moons ago at the University of Cincinnati. And someone came to me and shared the gospel with me. And especially someone like me, believing that I was saved because I knew the language of Christianity. Is anyone in here today, before you really came to the Lord, you already knew sort of the language of Christianity? Anyone like that? You sort of, you knew what it, you could even share with people about the Roman road, maybe. You could share with people about how to come to Christ, maybe. You could talk to them about the stories of the Bible, but yet you really didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that was me. That was definitely me. Here's the second point. The second point. Be aware of the woman's hopeful response. Be aware of the woman's hopeful response. Notice verse 27 in Mark 5. Notice what it says. After hearing about Jesus, the woman came up in the crowd behind him. And what does she do? She comes up in the crowd behind him hoping that somehow... I can be healed. Why is this a hopeful response? Because she hears about Jesus, and she's thinking that somehow maybe this physician can heal me. No one else has been able to do it. In Mark, 10, in Mark 3.10, it says this, For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. So what this woman is about to do had been done before. So as this woman realizes there's this huge crowd, remember Jesus is on his way perhaps to heal um, the daughter of the synagogue official. And everyone's pressing on. They want to hear something from Jesus. They want to perhaps touch him, just get close to him, this sort of aura that Jesus has. And that is not unusual because uh, history tells us that even with Alexander the Great, when he would come into a town, People would want to be around him and even touch him, and they would bow down. They're perhaps some of what he emits, at least they thought, would rub off on them. And so here is Jesus. And she thinks, maybe if I just touch, and remember this woman, if I just touch his garment, then I'll be healed. So there's hope. So what would this woman have heard? Well, she would have heard that he'd healed the sick. She would have heard that he was compassionate. She would have heard that he had cast out demons from people, and she's thinking, maybe me. Maybe this 12 years of being an outcast and the pain and the suffering, and now using all of my resources can be gone. And why did she need hope? Why did this woman need hope? Because there would have been emotional suffering as well. Like we said before, she was an outcast, not allowed in the temple. Even if she touched someone else, they would be considered impure. So she needed hope, and Jesus was going to offer that. Here's the third thing to consider. Be encouraged by the woman's ultimate belief. Be encouraged by the woman's ultimate belief. And she touched the fringe of his garment. Now, in Matthew 9, go with me to Matthew 9. Turn over to Matthew 9. And we get her very words in Matthew 9, 21. And it says... For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall get well. So there is that sense of hope. And notice what she is not thinking. She is not thinking, oh, I need this 
very intimate engagement with Jesus. I need Jesus to speak something to me. I need him to grab a hold of me. Not that at all. She says, if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. Because she realizes there is something unique about Jesus. There is a power about him. He is very different than anyone else that has come before. He is very different than any other prophet that has come before. Here's an application for you. Think about it this way. Authentic faith will overcome doubt. We must be willing to overcome our doubt with our faith. And we might even say this by way of an application. And be close enough to Christ to be healed. What does that mean, though? Um, In our Christian life, we grow in our Christian life. We have ups and downs and things that we're faced with in life. That's why I believe the writer of Hebrews tells us this, that we can come to the throne of grace in time of need. And what does it mean to come to the throne of grace? That means that we find in ourselves a, a need. And once we realize there's a need, we have to go to a source that is greater than ourselves, a person that is greater than ourselves. And we fall on our knees and say, Lord, I need help. That is coming to the throne of grace. Here's a fourth point to consider. Be encouraged by Jesus' powerful healing. Be encouraged by Jesus' powerful healing. In Mark verse 25, 29, it says this, And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, notice that word immediately. And if you study through the book of Mark, you notice that is a theme that goes throughout. It sort of gives a, a flavor for the book itself. Immediately this demon happened. Immediately he spoke. Immediately he came. Immediately you see it throughout that gospel. And it's this point of emphasis. And so, why does Mark conclude it here to say this was a powerful healing? It makes me think for a moment, I wasn't intended to say this, but I will. Um, sometimes how there are people that claim to have the gift of healing. And these people say that at times when a person isn't healed, it's their fault. And when they are healed, they have claimed, they claim it, right? You ever notice that perhaps? Now, when you get healed, Right, I'm the greatest, right? When it doesn't work, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. And there are people around me, people in my church that have gone to places like this before. I've seen it firsthand. I thought that's always a curious way to do things. It's your fault when it works. It's my credit when it does, right? Is that the style of Jesus? Not at all here. Immediately, she was healed. And if a person genuinely has this power, immediacy. This is true of Jesus Christ. It demonstrates the power that he had. But it's also this, because the word that is used here says she was healed. So she was healed, continued to be healed of her affliction. Another vivid word that's used here, and the word was used, or it could have been this, she was healed of her scourging. She was healed of her whipping, because that's at times how the word would be translated elsewhere. You see it that way in Mark chapter 10, verse 3. The torment is over. Jesus Christ's power has worked in our life. Let's consider a fifth point. Be encouraged. Here's another reason to be encouraged. Be encouraged by Jesus' deliberate intention. His deliberate intention. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 30, it says this, And immediately Jesus, 
perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around the crowd and said, who touched me? And then in verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the multitude pressing in on you and you say, who touched you? How can you say this, Jesus? That's always interesting to me because there's really a tone of sarcasm um, that is in their voice here. And so imagine the crowd. They're going to this official's house and people are wondering, I want to be there as well. I want to see this miracle take place. People are pressing in on him. And then this woman just touches his garment. She's healed immediately. And Jesus says, wait a minute, something happened. And he turns around and he asks the question, who touched me? Now, I believe the question is rhetorical. I believe Jesus knew exactly who touched him, but he wanted to engage this woman. He knew power had gone forth and to whom. But he wanted to have an intimate encounter with this woman. Why do I say that? I don't think Jesus in this episode or any other simply is going to do a miracle for a miracle's sake. There's always a goal that's in mind. Whenever Jesus Christ performs a miracle, there's an ultimate goal. What do I mean by that? Uh, we might take, say, for instance, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John ends with this statement. It says, Jesus did many things of which if they were contained in books, the world could not hold them all. And it says this, essentially, these things are written that you might believe and believe have life. What things are written? Well, if you look at the Gospel of John, it centers around seven miracles and seven sayings. So essentially what John is communicating, look at these seven miracles that Jesus communicates, and it points you to him as the Savior. And so with a miracle, it has an objective. The objective is this. Let me pause and see what just happened. Now, once I pause and I see what has happened, what is the source of this? Or who is the source of it? That being Jesus Christ. And so he wants to engage this woman on a personal level. I might say this. Here's an application for you. The application is this. Jesus is concerned for all who come in faith. Um, despite <clears throat> Jairus' status, he took the time for the social outcast. So here's a question for us. Will we take time for and fill in the blank? Now, remember what is happening here. Here is this leader of the synagogue. His child has died. He's crying out to Jesus, come and she will be revived again. Jesus begins to go. The crowd is pressing in. People are wanting to see this miracle that's going to take place. And here is this woman that sort of comes up into the crowd, if you will, a social outcast, should not touch anyone. And what does she do? She touches the cloak of Jesus and she's healed. Now, Jesus could have easily said, well, power went forth for me. Someone's been healed. Let's go to this person who has social status. The crowd is with me. They're more concerned about seeing that. Let's disregard her. But he doesn't do that. He takes time for this woman that others definitely would have taken no time for. That's a valuable lesson to learn in this episode, that we should be people that do the same. Sometimes we get comfortable with the people that are most like us, don't we? They think like us. They behave like us. They dress like us. They have the same amount of education that we do, perhaps. They hang in the same social settings that we do. And Jesus teaches us a lesson, I believe, here. It says, well, broaden your horizons, perhaps. 
I want you to go back, though, to Luke chapter 8. Because it feels in the episode here. Look at Luke 8 with me in verse 46. Luke 8, 46. And it says this in Luke 8, 46. But Jesus said, someone did touch me. For I was aware that power had gone out of me. So the disciples are questioning Jesus. Why would you make such a statement, Jesus? And as well, how can you identify the people that touch you? So many people are touching you, but very differently. Some are touching me simply because it's, it's coincidental, if you will. We're just so close together. But someone has touched me in faith with hope that they will be healed. And that generated power going forth from me. And that's very interesting. So think about that for a moment. Because in the other occasions that we see Jesus healing, it was a command. He would speak a word. And we know one of the greatest commands, even with Lazarus later on, Lazarus, come forth, he says, right? Or someone would cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he'd say, as you wish, let it be. He would speak a word to that person, they would be healed. Here, he doesn't say anything, but he's healed. Because of this power. The same was true in the, in the book of Acts as well, because even they saved from Paul and, and Peter, they would get a cloth that was even they had, and people would be healed by it. Even some were healed just by being in their shadow. And here is Jesus healed, almost sort of passively, if you will, healing her, is what occurs here. But nonetheless, healed. Twelve years with other physicians, and one second with him. He says, no, power has gone out of me. Now, go with me to Mark chapter 5. Look at Mark 5, verse 32. And this sort of fills the episode out. So we have Matthew 9, 30 and 31. Then we have Luke 8, 46. And then we have Matthew 5, 32, sort of filling this little episode out of what's happening in the bigger narrative. Mark 5, 32, and it says, and he looked around. Now, that's important. Because in Matthew's gospel, it simply said he looked around and made this statement. And Mark, it sort of fills it out more, and you could translate it, and he kept looking. So imagine, if you will, here's Jesus. He's going along. People are brushing up against him. This woman touches him, and he turns around, and it's like, someone touched me. Who is it that did it? Where is it? Where is this person? And he looks around because he wants to have an encounter with the woman, which leads us to the sixth consideration. The sixth sort of movement of response. Be aware of the woman's reverent response. Be aware. In Mark 5, 33, it says, But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And interesting enough, It says in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 8 and 47, I'll just read it. And it says this, and when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, so she wanted to do it what without notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So that helps us understand what's happening here. So it's not simply her coming and saying, Yes, okay, to Jesus privately. She's making a testimony in front of everyone. 
Mark says she simply told the whole truth. We aren't sure why she's fearing and trembling. Maybe it's because she's awestruck because what has happened? She realizes in herself, I'm healed. After 12 years, I'm healed. Maybe she's wondering, wait a minute, is he going to rebuke me? Because I was an unclean person, I shouldn't have initiated contact with him. Maybe she's fearful that Jesus is going to say to her, woman, why have you done this? Aren't you familiar with Leviticus 15, 19 to 27? But it's not that at all. So she tells him the whole truth. I love that. And then Luke fills it out. She said in the presence of everyone. So imagine again, the crowd is going about. They're on their way to this official's house. It's stopped for this moment. Jesus turns to this woman that is an outcast. And now what does she do in front of everyone? She gives a testimony. She says to everyone that's there, she, they hear her story for 12 years. This is what I experienced. This is what I went through. And then she says how she had been immediately healed. She draws attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the application? It's simple and it's direct. Our lives should be a testimony for Christ. This woman's life in this moment becomes a testimony for Jesus Christ. I believe that's why Jesus Christ turned around, looked for her, engaged her, because he knew she would give a testimony for him. That's his objective, to draw all men to himself. And that's what happens here. She gives a testimony. Here's our, our final point. Our final point. Be encouraged by Jesus' compassionate blessing. We should be encouraged by his compassionate blessing. In Mark 5, 34, it says this. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction, or, or be healed of your scourging, be healed of your whipping. Remember that, that vivid word that was used of the sufferings of Jesus Christ? It's over with. What's important here is first, what Jesus did not do is really important. What he didn't do is important. And what he doesn't do is rebuke the woman. Of course, Jesus Christ, being the very word himself, he is familiar with Leviticus 15, is he not, Right? He knows that this woman should not have done that. She knows she should not have initiated contact with him. But he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't remind her of what she had violated prior to that. It is just the opposite. It is just the opposite. He gives her a blessing. And, and we might even say this, why was there no rebuke? Because a part of Jesus' ministry is helping people understand this. You see it throughout the gospel accounts. He wants people to understand this. This is so important. That ceremonial impurity is not the issue. The issue is the filthiness of the heart. That's why Jesus said to even some of the Pharisees and religious leaders, you're like whitewashed tombs, right? And when you whitewash something, it makes it appear what? But inside, what did he say that they were? Full of dead men's bones. And what did he say about the heart? He said about the heart, it's not really what comes out of the heart. It's really not what comes into the body that is what comes out. Because that communicates what? What is in your heart? He was trying to help people throughout his ministry understand it is the issue of the heart. Look at the religious leaders. And yes, they keep the law and they have ceremony and they, 
They realize what should not be done and what should done, and they purify their hands before they go to worship, and they wash themselves, but yet in their heart there's wickedness. But we should all stop for a moment, shouldn't we? And ask ourselves, and what, what is in our heart? Now, this woman, it, was, it would have been obvious to people that she had an issue. But we can go about life, and people can be right next to us, but not realize what's in our heart. We can have the appearance of being pure, but yet there's impurity in our heart and our thoughts. We can go to church and we can participate in all the ministries that are attached to it. We can learn the language of the church. We can conform to the standards of the church, but we can remain unclean inside. So notice the blessing that is on her. First, it's this. He says, daughter. That's an affectionate term that's used only here. So he's saying to her, no, I don't have a rebuke for you. As a matter of fact, I have an encouragement. He refers her with affection. Then he says, your faith has made you well. And what's interesting about the word when it says made well, or it, other times it could be translated, your faith has saved you. It really is a play on the name for Jesus, Yeshua. And, and I believe perhaps that's on purpose here. Because the only way that you were made well is based on my power. And then he says to her, go in peace. So he gives her more than just a divine farewell. He's telling her that you have my favor. He assures the woman that I am the instrument of your future health as well. Make sure that you understand that. And I think he's saying to everyone that would have heard it, it really doesn't matter what your background is. Imagine this again. Understand who this woman is. She is a a social outcast. But he says to her in that moment, go in peace. He pronounces peace on her, which was a statement to say, it doesn't really matter what your past sins are. Because once God has touched your life, it's all over. It, It starts new. You are a new creature in Christ. And that's what happens here. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about your past sins. You know, there is a, initially this statement may seem strange to you, but I'll help you understand it. There is some, there is a benefit to sin. A benefit to sin. How is that possible? God, in his mind, allowed that sin would take place in the world. He decreed it. He decreed a fall. He decreed that man would come, he would create him. He decreed that they would fall, and he decreed that Jesus Christ would come and save. So we can say that God, without being the author of sin or causing sin, uses sin to his glory. Because now, once we see sin, Christ's grace and his love is amplified all the more. There is an account in the book of Luke, and the woman who has just a horrible background, But yet when she was forgiven, she cried at the feet of Jesus. And others wanted to say to her, why is he allowing this to happen? But what did Jesus Christ say? He says, those who have been forgiven much do what? Love much. If you've been forgiven little, you love little. What was Jesus Christ communicating? There was sort of in one sense the benefit of sin to say that once we realize how much we have been forgiven, we will communicate all the more to our God how great you are. 
I think about my own life, and, and if I could reflect on some of the time in my life when I did not know the Lord, and I realized, God, how great you are that you would save me from that. There is a great benefit that's here. And so to this woman, she has been healed of her affliction. And now Jesus says, go in peace. He is a sufficient Savior. My God shall supply all of your needs. Familiar scripture, right? Ephesians chapter 1, God is sufficient. Colossians 1, God is working all things together. He is controlling all things. He tells to her, be healed. There is finally now for her, this woman, there is a bomb. And it comes from the power of God to touch her life. Now, I want to take some time on this final thought. Because I want to give you a big picture here. Here's the final thought. And it is this. We may not have the gift of healing, but we have a message of healing. I want to make a connection with you. Go back to, go to Matthew chapter 9. Now, I don't believe in the physical gift of healing for today. I do believe that God heals people. I don't believe that any person can say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be healed by their own power like an apostle could, but I do believe that God will heal people according to his sovereign plan. Um, and it's not just because I have seen it by way of prayer. And what, I, what I mean by that is there are people that I've prayed for that God would heal them according to his sovereign will, and he has done that. And the other people that I've prayed for and God has decided that they would not be healed. Um, I have a message of healing, which is the gospel. And what I have to do is take that gospel message to people. Because even if physically they remain trapped in whatever ailment they have, they can be freed. They can be freed through the gospel message. Let me stop talking. I want you to see something in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9, here's a connection. Now, we, we already noted earlier in Matthew 9, that this episode is parallel to Mark chapter 5. But I want to set it up for you. Initially, I was going to do it at the introduction, but I want to do it now because I think it may make better sense with this final thought that we have a message of healing. Go to Matthew chapter 9. So in verse 2, it says this. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith... Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> and some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now, stop for a moment and consider something. So this is setting up this whole context of what happens with this woman later on who is healed of this sickness that she had for 12 years. And it starts off with him healing someone else. We see the connection to faith. He says, take courage, your sins are forgiven. Well, notice the connection that's there. There's a physical healing that takes place, but also he is pronouncing that what is going to take place as well. You are forgiven. And that's why there's a response from the leaders that says, this man is blaspheming. How can he make such a statement? He's does this to let them know that I have authority to do both. Not only to heal physically, but to forgive sins, which we see in verse 6. So then that takes place. So we see a connection between what? 
faith and healing. We see a connection between physical healing and then spiritual healing with Jesus Christ. And then go on. Notice verse 11 in Matthew chapter 9. When the Pharisees saw this, so there's now Jesus is dining with sinners. Remember before we talked about how Jesus' ministry was so different? Here he turns to this woman that's an outcast, and in his ministry as well, what is he doing now? He's dining with sinners and with tax collectors. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he says, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So obviously, in this instance, he is really not dealing with physical sickness, but what? A sickness of the heart. And he says here in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So at the heart of Jesus Christ is also a heart of compassion. And what is compassion? It is one of the preeminent words that we see in the gospel that describes Jesus Christ and his ministry. Compassion means to, a very rich word when we look at it from the background in the Old Testament, it really is a sense of being stirred up inside. So when I'm stirred up, it means I have compassion for that person. But the compassion is not simply the stirring, it means an action that will follow. And what do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, the word was used in a real literal sense. Because at times, say for instance, when we say we may have compassion for someone, we sort of feel something somewhere, don't we at times? And where do you sort of feel it? You say, I had this sort of odd feeling right here. And that's even the background to this Hebrew word. And it means to, at times used for our bowels. And that's where it really comes from. Because you would, something you would feel right here when your heart goes out for someone. When you have compassion for them, you feel it. But yet, it is not enough simply to feel it, then the question is now, what will I do with that feeling? Because we may see someone and we realize that they have a need and we feel for them, but we do nothing about it. That's not genuine compassion. Jesus Christ showed genuine compassion by doing. You see it throughout the Gospels. So here we learn something about Jesus Christ, that his heart is to bring a message of hope to people and to be compassionate. Now, go to the end of this chapter. Look at Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Verse 35, and what does it say? Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So if we just stop right there for a moment, here again, we pick up this narrative. Jesus is going about. He's healing people, diseases. He's casting out demons. All these things are happening, but then he brings it back to something that is very spiritual. Because in verse 37, it says what? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest. In the end, it comes back to that. So at the end of this message, I say, you don't have a gift of healing, but you have a message of healing. It comes back to that. Jesus had a very unique ministry, and that unique ministry, yes, it healed people. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. But it had one ultimate objective, 
which is to draw attention to himself that people would be saved. Because what does it matter if I'm healed, but yet I lose my soul? What, what does it matter that I discover some truth, but yet that truth is, does not attach itself to my heart, and I don't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we learn from this episode and this woman? Have a heart of compassion. What do, what do we learn from this episode that Jesus really didn't care about people that were considered outcasts, but for him, if they demonstrated faith, he wanted a relationship with them. What do we learn about Jesus here? That he, he plays no social status game. He is off to this person that was preeminent, but he takes time for this woman that no one else would have even considered. What do we learn about Jesus? That he was a powerful healer. But that powerful healing had one objective, which was to bring glory to God and ultimately to bring people to faith. What is our objective as believers? To bring people to faith. To bring glory to God. People are out there and <clears throat> it would be wonderful. You know, I, I'm sure people, I can understand emotionally how people can get trapped into some of these ministries that claim healing. I'm sure that, I shouldn't say that I'm sure, but I would think that perhaps when my dad was going up to Walter Reed Army Hospital and that last time to see my mom alive, that he would have hoped that there's somebody that can just touch her and can heal her, that this will be over. But there was no one. Even those doctors that tried as they may, and I know, I'm sure that they were sincere. And, of course, this happened, what, 43 years ago. And the technology that we have today wasn't available then. They tried as best they could, but to no avail. But my mom had been healed of a greater, greater, greater disease, which is more than a disease. And as much as I love my mom and as much as she was a dear person, as much as her reputation still precedes her in the sense that if I go back home and people still speak of her, you know, 40-some years after her death as being such a great woman because something else had taken place in her heart. She had been engaged with Jesus Christ personally and had come to Christ personally. This woman had been healed of her disease that she had suffered for for 12 years, but she had a personal engagement with Jesus Christ. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What's your calling? To go to people, to share with them with, about Jesus Christ, that you can have peace with God. That's a higher calling. That's what God wants us to do. And be compassionate to people that are out there. You know, we, we need to develop a heart of compassion that people are without Christ. It's sort of easy. You know, I've been to different places around the world, and I've seen any number of things around the world. I remember the first time I went to Haiti, and I thought, wow. You know, you see something on National Geographics, and when you're there right next to that person and realize that's how people live, you say, wow, is that true? And I've seen other things around the world, and you say, is that true how people live? And, and you want to do everything you can for them. And you come back home, you say, boy, really? You just left the place where they just dug a hole. They took a month to dug a hole so they can, that's their restroom. 
and you come home and you're complaining because there's a towel missing on the floor. Your heart goes out to them, but your heart has to go out towards people in their souls. They're lost and without Christ. Because Jesus Christ made it plain. Here's my last thought. He made it plain. What, what does it matter if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? So what does it matter? Even in some of those countries that I've been, what does it matter that we say, okay, we're going to build you a better home and you lose your soul? What does it matter if we say, you will never be hungry again, but you lose your soul? What would it matter if I had the gift of healing and the kids that I've seen that basic, basic care, if they had basic care, they wouldn't have maybe a debilitating disease or, or they wouldn't have lost a limb or they would have their sight or they wouldn't have an overbite or they wouldn't have this illness. And if I could take a bunch of doctors with me and we could work on them all and heal them all, and it's say, for instance, I had the gift of healing. I could touch people and say be healed, but yet they lose their souls. See, something has to, you have to have that compassion from that Hebrew word that means to stir up inside when you realize that person is out Christ. What am I going to do? What's going to stir up inside of me? Am I going to be like Jesus? And you remember when Jesus, the woman touched him and he looked about wanting to engage that woman. Allow me to make an application to say, you know what, let's look about and see people that need Christ and fulfill our commission that we can be a blessing to others. Father, thank you for this word you give us that you would encourage us. Thank you for the example of Jesus Christ that um, he puts forth that Jesus Christ, the great compassionate Savior who touched the hearts of so many, both physically and spiritually. Help us to look into the harvest. Because this story of healing is not just about a physical healing. We see throughout the example, the life of Jesus Christ, that there was always this relationship between physical healing and spiritual healing. Help us not to miss that point. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.